0: Thanks for joining me, everybody. Welcome to the show. My guest is Gregory Whitestone. He's the author of Inconvenient Facts, the Science that Al Gore Doesn't Want You to Know. This book is available at Amazon.com. We're going to be discussing science today, particularly the science of uh, of a weather, global warming, or as they call it, climate change. Gregory, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Oh, you bet. Glad to be here. Gregory, let's first of all talk a little bit about your background as a scientist, as a geologist, how it is that you arrived at the research and, and at the um, thesis that you present? Yeah, I'm a I'm a, a geologist. I've been studying the
1: various aspects of the Earth's history for more than 35 years, uh, and I I didn't set out to write a book. Uh, I really didn't. I set out actually to seek the truth because as a geologist, I knew that some of the things were being told about climate change were just wrong. And I suspected that some of the other things were being told, were wrong. but as you know, we get such conflicting information about the subject. And I I actually just did a deep dive into the base data from NASA, NOAA, uh, peer reviewed articles, because I wanted to find out the truth. And it was this search for the truth that led me to the book because frankly, what I found was just shocking in that um, most of what we're being told about the subject, uh, the increases in all these apocalyptic events that are going to happen due to uh, our, what I call the sin, our sins of emission, uh, increasing CO2 that's going to cause uh, drastic heating, which will then necessarily lead to uh, floods, droughts, not enough rain, too much rain, too much snow, not enough snow. You know the drill. Right. And, and what I found was what we actually see is happening is that the Earth's improving. That the Earth is prospering and thriving. It's not. We're not diving into some or spiraling into this climate hell. Uh, we're actually seeing an Earth that's greening. Uh, we're growing more crops because of uh, rising temperatures and increasing CO two, and the overall theme of the book really is that rising temperatures and increasing CO two are leading uh, to a prospering and thriving Earth, and that's a great story. It's a might be one of the untold stories of our time. And it, it, I, I sometimes feel like an old-time evangelist preaching the good news of uh, carbon dioxide and increasing CO2 and climate change, because your listeners probably have never heard that. And it's the, the facts, the science, the data are stark and clear. The,
0: um, you know I, I've come to realize from my own cursory study of these issues, and I generally don't delve too deeply in science, but what i 've come to see is that scientific inquiry and scientific reporting and research is a lot more political than I thought. I always thought, and maybe this was my own naive um, understanding that science was just that science it 's an understanding of the nature of god 's world i mean it 's the study of the physical world it 's a study of the abstract world it 's a you know it 's an objective attempt to understand and research and gather information and learn more about the world so we can make life better on earth we can cure diseases we can build skyscrapers we can have better transportation we can have better um, you know all of the benefits and blessings that we can have based upon knowledge but what i've discovered from the whole global warming climate change agenda is that it's skewed now i'm not saying that they may not that the science that the the, uh, the global warmists may not be at least partially right, but the fact that they are so censorious of anyone who doesn't agree with their particular thesis to the point where there's even been talk and maybe offhandedly, but nevertheless very chillingly, talk about putting people in jail who don't agree with global warming. Including former Attorney General uh, Loretta Lynch made a comment like that back in the uh, Obama years and um, so that tells me that there's something political going on here. Now, Gregory, you have said that um, the increase in carbon monoxide and, and temperature is improving the world and it's greening the world in a lot of ways. Um, but, but I guess that the, the, the thought that comes to my mind right away is, is is that situation a man-made situation or is that something that's occurring naturally? Well, part of it's man made.
1: The CO2 contribution increases. Um, I don't run away from that. It's We've increased CO2 from 280 parts per million. I don't want to go too much in details, but it's important to know this that we've, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we were about 280 parts per million. We're a little bit over 400 now. So we've added 120, 130 parts per million, 40% increase in CO2. And it's primarily due to our burning of fossil fuels. Uh, It turns out there's about 5% of that's due to actually cement manufacture, believe it or not. But the primary driver of this is burning fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas. And that increase in CO2, uh, I don't, again, I don't run away from the fact that it is a greenhouse gas. And it necessarily has to contribute some amount of warming to the atmosphere, albeit I would argue it's very modest, fairly small, and greatly overwhelmed by the same natural forces that have been driving temperature for hundreds of millions of years. Those same natural forces, those, they didn't stop. Al Gore, Dr. Michael Mann from Penn State, they want your listeners to think that those same natural forces have been active since the dawn of time, suddenly halted at the beginning of the 20th century. Come on, man, give me a break. That's not how nature or science works. Those same natural forces that have been driving temperature up and down and up and down for eons are still in force today. And we know that That what I, what I often say about temperature, the only thing constant about temperature is it's never constant. Man, it's going up and down on a regular basis. We happen to be in a warming trend right now. We've been in a 300-plus year warming trend, and we know exactly the year that that warming trend started. It was the year 1695. At the depths of the Little Ice Age, the horrific Little Ice Age, uh more than more than half the population of iceland perished hundreds of thousands of people died in one year in europe uh due to the in the depths of what's called the or minimum uh, we had crop failures there was famine uh pestilence uh, and we see that back throughout history going back the last four thousand years there's just uh, one of my favorite parts of the book is the the section i have um on the relationship between the rise and fall of temperatures and the rise and fall of civilizations. During the warm periods, uh, civilizations rise up. Uh, They can grow lots of crops, much warmer temperatures than we have today. And Mm -hmm. so the great civilizations rise, and then it got cold. Each intervening cold period with names like the Greek Dark Ages, the Dark Ages, the Little Ice Age. In each case, these cold periods led to crop failures, famine, Masty population, bad, bad, bad things happen when it's cold. But we see during the warm periods, uh, lots of crops are grown, uh, people thrive, and they're, they're very, it's a, it's a beneficial time. Uh, and we're not, um, so the, the, the warming period has historically led to uh, great crop growth, not, not negative uh, crop growth. And, and I will say uh, an interesting comment uh, Scott Pruitt made a few weeks ago was that uh, he said, how arrogant is it of us to think that we know what the ideal temperature is of the Earth? And and I love that. And we believe I got a note from Scott Pruitt over the weekend, a a personalized note thanking me for the book. Uh, But Michael Mann from Penn State responded, well, of course, we know what the ideal temperature of the Earth was. It was the temperature before we started adding CO2 is what he said. Mm -hmm. You know what that would put us? In the middle of the Little Ice Age, we know how that worked out. The last,
0: well, time. you know, that that gets into maybe some of the politics of this, which is this idea of the pristine Earth, where man doesn't even have a footprint at all. Somehow, that um, any human intervention, any human growth, any human economy, is seen as um, you know parasitical to uh, perfect nature. I mean, this is kind of the New Agey sort of Gaia principle that. Um, underlies a lot of the work of people like Al Gore and and um, some of the masters over at the United Nations. Um, but the fact is that we are a people who want to advance an in industrial age and that part of that is using energy and that the main source of energy is still fossil fuels. That doesn't mean that we should not invest in alternative energy. Um, in some cases, I think alternative energy can work To a small degree, here in Massachusetts, for example, there has always been talk about harnessing the enormous tides that come in and out of the Bay of Fundy, north of Maine. It's one of the strongest suctions in the world, just because of the way it's built. And those are good things. I mean, there's nothing wrong with hydroelectric power and developing alternatives to fossil fuels, because, you know, that will cut down on air pollution, which will maybe at least somewhat contain the growth of CO2s in the atmosphere, which I think we all think is probably good, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and your your comment about utilizing all of uh, the resources, I was contacted, and again, this goes back to my book, Inconvenient Facts, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, your your listeners can, can learn more at inconvenientfacts.xyz, by the way. Uh, oh. But I was contacted by Calvin Beisner, who's the uh, founder of the Cornwall Alliance for. The Stewardship of Creation. It's a Christian group, not a creationist group, but a Christian group. And he said, he contacted me out of the blue and he said, Greg, your book fully aligns uh, with our philosophy. And I I didn't know who they were at the time. And I said, "Okay, well, what's your philosophy? And basically, to paraphrase, well, what he said was basically, um, we believe in utilizing all of God's creation for the betterment of mankind but do it as good stewards because we're, we're, we need to be good stewards of his creation. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, who could argue against that? But apparently a lot of people can. Um, so he and I, and I, I was their book of the month, uh, uh, for April. Um, and it was, uh, it's, I'm, I'm glad I'm, if you, if your listeners want to go to Cornwall org, uh, they have a lot of really good, uh, uh, climate material there that that they might enjoy um, mm-hmm. so i'm I'm doing a lot of op-eds uh, so but yeah but, I, I believe that we should use coal oil, natural gas, reliable inexpensive energy for the world to provide to lift these people up out of out of energy poverty rather than um, submit these these to uh, these people to, to expensive intermittent energy my I had an op-ed recently two weeks ago on the Pope because the Pope met with oil company executives. I don't know if you recall that. Right. I saw something like that. Right. mm -hmm. And uh, my article about the Pope was that that he has it exactly backwards on, on climate change and CO2 because his proposal is basically to, to to adapt uh, and, and, and enact the Paris climate accord, which would necessarily drive costs up for everybody. And, and use have the world rely on these intermittent sources of energy like solar and wind rather than reliable inexpensive energy sources because we've got your your listeners may not know there are a billion people on earth without access to electricity that could really use it there are there are another two billion that severely lack the energy that they need and it's estimated there are four million deaths a year from Cooking over open fires, and that's mostly dried dung. Uh, these are respiratory issues. If these people had access to uh, to carbon-based and, and fossil fuels like propane and compressed natural gas, um, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. They, we could save four million lives a year. It's, it's so so reliable and expensive uh, energy from fossil fuels uh, lifts the, the poorest of us up. And the, and actually, if you raise energy prices it's it's actually a regressive taxation system because the poorest among us pay the largest percent of their income for energy so if you raise raise that energy those energy prices you're you're actually hurting the poorest among us the worst right Mm -hmm. economy and you're 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 making the destiny for the rest of these world the rest of the world that living in poverty generations more of the same type of poverty
0: uh so the, in a sense, the, alter, the so-called alternative energies, the uh, the wind and solar. My understanding is that those, even in the best of circumstances, are very, very limited, and they're very intermittent in terms of what they can do. Maybe they could could perhaps provide some energy for a house, but they're very. It's very expensive to create that, and it's something that, you know, if we want to have advances as a civilization and as an industrial. Uh, world, we, we can't possibly rely on it. It's very backward to do that. Now, that's not to say that in the future there may not be technologies that might develop to improve those things, and that's great. Um, nuclear, of course, we haven't even talked about that. That's a whole different question with a whole different set of problems associated with it. But um, it seems to me that, that if we're going to advance, we ought to invest in better ways to develop fossil fuels and cleaner ways to develop it. Like for example, I had a, a talked with this man who is uh, representing the coal industry. And he told me that the, uh, that the coal industry has developed this technology by which they can take the residue of coal production and turn it into this product that, that can make drywall. Yep. Can, yep. Right. And, and it's completely benign. There's nothing toxic about it. It's, it's, um, you know it doesn't pollute the air but he said the problem with trying to create these plants and to bring it to state governments and is that it's so politically unpopular to even mention coal that it's it's just it's a, there's like a wall up there so they cannot because of the enormous propaganda of the global warming and the anti coal business they can't even get out to first base in terms of of bringing this product out to the public and there were other products like that i mean there were ways to improve air you know you know carbon emissions there's say sequestration which is right now an expensive process of of basically pumping air you know air particulates underground but it could be developed there could be some research into that area
1: uh, hang on one you know? second I, uh... The only thing you being pumped into the ground with CO2 sequestration are your tax dollars. Okay. Right? I mean, I, CO2 is not a pollutant. It, under the Obama EPA, it was declared a, a pollutant by the former EPA administrator. I fully expect Scott Pruitt at some point, I wish he had done it by now, to reverse that that finding of CO2. Right. Pollutant. CO2 is not a pollutant. We're at 410 parts per million now. Uh, CO2 on submarines, the U.S. Navy submarines often exceeds 8,000 parts per million. So, 400 parts per million, not only that, it's supposed to be at an extraordinarily high level. Prior to our current geologic period, the average CO2 level on Earth was 2,600 parts per million. For most of Earth's history, it was over 4,000 parts per million, 10 times what it is today. And the plants that we rely on for food and sustenance they all originated uh, when CO2 was at over 2,000 parts per million. So we're 400 plus today. Uh, CO2 is is a is a beneficial, life affirming, life giving gas that 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 we need, and and the plants uh, thrive on it. And in the book, I say, you know, uh, one of the one of the parts of the book, one of the things I like there was a, a, just a quote that I said that uh, you know I don't pretend to speak for the plant life. But if the plants had a vote in the matter, they surely wouldn't be lobbying for less CO2, they'd be lobbying for more. So mm-hmm. CO2 is, um, is beneficial for uh, due to CO2 fertilization effect. And that CO2 fertilization effect doesn't just mean the crops grow better, faster and bigger. It also means the crops need less water. And so what we're seeing now, now is the pores, they're called stomata. The pores are smaller with increased CO2 and they need they're they're not breathing in and out it's called transpiration they don't need to breathe in and out as much with higher co2 so what we're seeing is um, water soil moisture stays in the ground rather than it being sucked out of the ground uh, and used by the plants and that's leading to higher soil moisture content and we're seeing this higher so- soil moisture it's turbocharged by increased precipitation due to global warming because as warming temp as the temperatures warm the atmosphere can hold more water vapor which is leading to more precipitation the alarmists will say oh well that's that's leading to flooding and it may in some cases but what we're seeing is uh, the increased precipitation's uh, having a great effect uh, in, where people really need it um, for example the southern sahara it's called the sahel uh, we're seeing in fact if your your listeners are probably in front of the computer uh, mm-hmm. But if they go over their smartphone, if they would Google NASA, yeah. greening and Sahara, don't do it while they're watching you. Do it afterwards. Right. Right. You don't want to drive them away. And you'll see what NASA has to say about this. You'll find that according to NASA, the earth is greening up to 50% of the earth is, is what they call greening. It's that it means vegetation is increasing and the scientists studying it, uh, say that it's due to, again, uh, CO2 fertilization effect and uh, increased precipitation due to global warming. And that's a huge untold story. So we see in the southern Sahel, so 300,000 square kilometers of former desert has turned into a lush grassland.
0: Wow.
1: You see people, animals, gazelles, even amphibians are moving back into this area. And why
0: isn't that being reported? Because it doesn't fit the narrative. The well, narrative- that's it, 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 Before I get into that, and I want to ask about that, Um What about the claim that, and this was from Al Gore's Inconvenient Truths, that the sea level is raising and that there's going to be, the North Pole is melting. Um, I know that here in in the city of Boston where I am, we last winter, we had some flooding at at the new seaport district in South Boston. And the mayor said, this is because of global warming and we're gonna have to spend, uh, I don't know how many billions of dollars to build new seawalls and shore the thing up and that boston is uh, trying to you know get its grips on what to do when the sea levels rise um so i don't know my question is is that something that's happening i mean are the sea levels rising
1: yes yes the levels okay. are rising, period they've been rising since the early 1800s remember i said warming started in 1695 at the depths of the little ice age Right. The previous warm period is called the medieval warm period. Sea levels were higher than they are today. In fact, the city of Pisa in Italy uh, was a port city. Today, it's 15 kilometers inland. So, And then it got cold. Little ice age. Glaciers advanced throughout Europe, Germany, France. Uh, uh, you may not know it, but a lot of the, the Chamonix portion of France uh, was, was ter- terribly devastated by the advance of glaciers. Overwhelming villages. Um, and those glaciers, as they, as they advance, they're sucking water. The water comes out of the oceans and do not come back into the oceans. Sea level dropped. Um, and recall too, that I remember I said, I said it was around 1700, 1695. We started warming. Well, you need to get it warm enough for summer ice loss and melt to exceed winter ice accumulation. At mm-hmm. that point, glaciers start receding, correct? If you follow me. So, when they start receding, that's contributing water to the oceans, which contribute to sea level rise. So right. we saw that that occurred early in the 1800s. And by 1850, we started, uh, we were full on glacial retreat, naturally driven, not CO2 driven, naturally driven, and we saw a rise in sea level with about the same rate that we see today. Uh, no acceleration. So
0: and that's what the- I was going to ask. So there isn't some emergency here. This isn't like... We're talking about what, what percentage over what period of time should we expect sea levels to rise?
1: Well, we're going to, we're on the, on the order of millimeters per decade, which is barely perceptible. Um, and there's, there's, you can see, we, we've really, the amount of sea level that we've seen over the last 50 or 60 years is, is barely perceptible to anybody. Um, lots of, of cases, anywhere, anybody that lives along the beach there will say, oh, well, our high tides were this. Fifty years ago, when Grandma moved here, and here's here, here's the dock, and here's where they are today. You know, right. yeah, you know, it might be millimeters difference. So, yes, sea level is rising, and it's rising due to global warming, which I will contend is primarily naturally driven. Because if we look over the last ten thousand years, uh, since the end of the last ice age, we see that there were nine other warming events very similar to what we're in today. Michael Mann and Al Gore will tell you that the warming we see today is unusual and unprecedented when it's neither. Uh, We saw these nine other warming periods. Uh, Five of them had higher rates of warming than we see in our current period in the 20th century. And and all nine ended up with much higher temperatures than we are today. So uh, we've we've been there and done that with these warming periods. And we've seen what's happened. We've seen that uh we don't we didn't see cataclysmic events uh and as we go if this warming continues for another uh, century or two centuries um, sure there's going to be there will be some areas that um we'll have to be careful about with, with rising sea level but again these people are trying to control the uncontrollable and what we want to do even if if the world enacted and every country enacted all of the paris climate accords uh, the results of that are, are less than, much less than a degree centigrade that would be spared from the additional CO2 on a quarter of half a degree or less. So you're not going to, what we're trying to do again is controlling the uncontrollable. These are natural forces uh, driving these, these temperature changes just as
0: they have since the dawn of time. Right. So, so what you're saying then is that, um, the phenomena that we're experiencing now global warming, which has been in place since the early part of the 19th century, is mostly a natural phenomena. It might be triggered a little bit by air pollution, which is what the claim is. But nevertheless, if it is a natural phenomena, as you say, then would it not stand to reason that it will be a cyclical situation and that we very well may have peaked in that regard and we may move back toward a cooling period that could last maybe a couple of hundred years is that an accurate uh, thought
1: absolutely absolutely the, the the warming trend we're in uh, i've seen a lot of data there's some recent data uh, looking at the solar activity mm-hmm. and that the, the solar activity has been declining and there are, there's predictions of us going into another solar minimum which would mean a great cooling effect uh, that may occur uh, but i look at as a geologist um you know making one of the quotes I have in the book is from Yogi Berra. It's one of my favorite quotes. He said, Yogi Berra said, making predictions is really tough, especially about the future. that's a classic Yogi Berra. But, uh, you know, when I'm I'm doing this, I I like to look back at the other warm periods, see how long they lasted. And based on the other warming periods, we we probably got another, we could go through another 60 or 80 or a couple hundred years of warming. Uh, and it will probably get another couple degree or so uh, warmer than we are today if we, if we're going to repeat the uh, what we found in the past in the history of the of the Earth uh, over the last ten thousand years. And um, we're not all going to die. We should be able to spend the money re- to adapt to the changes that we do see. Um, and, and that's yeah, there's, I mean uh, the uh, the summary of my book is titled The Benefits of Principled in Action. In other words, we shouldn't be doing something that's gonna harm us economically, Mm -hmm. just barely perceptible change.
0: Well, that that brings me to the political question here, which is that, um, you know, if, as you say, which I think makes common sense, is that uh, changes in, in temperature and atmosphere is mostly natural, it is very gradual, it's virtually imperceptible. And yet, yeah, why is it then that we have this enormous international effort with uh, really, you know, the wealthiest of the wealthy and the top people promoting this alarmist agenda that, that you know, the earth is going to burn to a crisp, you know, the sky is falling chicken little, right? you know, I mean, you know, you know this kind of, uh, you know, memby pemby sort of thing that they're doing that, you know, scares the you know what out of everyone and that basically what it does is that every time we have a hot spell i mean certainly here in boston all of the people that have been been duped by this agenda are filled with rage over you know this country and over industrialism and over all of the things that they take for granted when they turn their light bulb on in their home and Mm -hmm. um, what what is this about i mean is this I, i sense that there's you know, kind of a socialistic agenda going on here. I would even go so far, and I don't know if you're up in this, and this is sheer speculation. I'm not saying this flat out, but I read something about the Hudson Institution report that was issued in 1965. Um, I think it was John Kenneth who was one of the participants in that, in which there was this conference that went on for a couple of years, and they talked about how can we bring about world socialism, How can we create a world movement, you know, where we have informal world government? And they said they came up with three possibilities. One of them was to create a hysteria around global warming, the idea that the world is going to, you know, environment is going to collapse. And I'm not sure they decided on whether it would be global warming or acid rain or something else. And the second one was that we're being invaded by aliens, (laughs) right? And again, I'm not here to endorse this. I've read about it. I'm not I'm not even going to cite it because it's the, it's pure theory. But yet it makes me wonder if there isn't some kind of a – when you see this establishment going to go the point where in the East Anglia Institute in, in England, they falsified documents to try to make it look like global warming was worse, and that was exposed by Lord Moncton a while back. And and other events, which, which, I mean, there was something like that that happened at NASA also, where they're trying so hard to make this appear to be a crisis. And that I've heard of scientists and people who have been climatologists, who have been in positions for decades, being drummed out of the business because they don't agree with it. Yeah. It does kind of make me speculate over the possibility that there very well may be some kind of an agenda here. What do you think?
1: Well, there's certainly an agenda.
0: it's science,
1: but it ain't regular science. It's political science, and uh, right. so yeah, I think there is an agenda. Um, sometimes when we talk about this type of thing, though, it's you, you almost feel like you ought to put on a tinfoil hat because it's kind of crazy. Right, exactly. but, but but you know what? The science, the facts, and the data support what I'm saying. Not not that we're diving into this climate hellhole, and and we got to get the science out. And, and the, the opening quote in my book, by the way, and you mentioned uh, Christopher Monkton, he he was actually an editor of mine. And he wrote, he wrote, yeah, wrote the foreword to the book, very helpful. Um, but I opened the book up with a quote from H.L. Mencken. to paraphrase it. Mencken said that uh, governments and institutions need to create these imaginary hobgoblins of alarm with which to frighten the public. We need to frighten and scare the public enough that they'll, other that they will adopt and endorse otherwise harmful regulations like the Paris Climate Accord, and so this is what climate change is. One of those hobgoblins of alarm. Uh, acid rain was one. Uh, they throw up the scary consequences: fracking, pipelines. All of these things go back to an aversion to CO two, though, and uh, so this is a. Yeah, you know, I go back to Mencken's quote of these hobgoblins, hobgoblins of alarm. And uh, right, if, if you don't mind, I'd like i I'd like to empower your listeners that mm-hmm. I, I I've got a PowerPoint presentation of the top twenty-five uh, figures in the book, and uh, this thing's fully illustrated with uh, more than uh, ninety full-color illustrations. There's a page with that you can see with uh, wonderful charts and uh, figures and if they go to inconvenientfacts.xyz uh, and hit the subscribe button and i'll send them a link for a powerpoint so they can use that they can use it on social media uh, they can turn them into jpegs and that way if their uh, idiot brother-in-law from long island posts something about polar bears going extinct they can go oh wait a minute here's a chart showing 60 years of polar bear population history showing they're inc- increasing what are you talking about, Frank? And uh, so so I'd like to empower your listeners. Again, that's inconvenientfacts.xyz. Uh, you can buy the book there, too, and there's a $5 off coupon on the page or at Barnes & Noble or Amazon as well. Uh, in fact, what, what, we just got the book into the uh,
0: Barnes & Noble brick-and-mortar stores a few weeks ago. Cool. Excellent. Well, Gregory, listen, it's um you know, it, there's nothing like good, solid information to counter some of the shrill hysteria out there. I think that average, our average fellow citizens are interested in just getting to some basic truths and uh, to put things into context. I think that people are tired of this living in fear and this constant drumbeat that the world is coming to an end. Chicken little, oh, the sky is falling. This... You know this sort of uh, thing going on, a- and and so I think that that the um, the issue augurs in your favor, even if the establishment won't acknowledge that you exist. And uh, and I hope to do my small part in getting it out, so getting the word out. So, anyways, Gregory, I want to again, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Let's do it again. By all means. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. All right, Gregory, and I'll send you a link when I have it.